After the proclamation of God's word this morning, we'll praise God with the words of hymn four, stanzas one, two, and three. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, my concern this morning is to convey to you something that I believe is buried and embedded in these two passages of the letter to the Romans that we read this morning. When we lay these passages side by side, we hear Paul saying something that we might not hear at the first instance. And that's the fact that according to Paul, there really are two ways in which you can live. You can live with God, you can live without God. You can live in your fallen state or you can live in something that's very close to and probably even better than our original created God intended way to live. The truth is there is no better present and no better future than that which is accessible to us through the gospel and the new life that comes to us through the regeneration that comes in Christ his Son. And we get to see that when we think about these two passages and focus on two people or two groups of people. Uh, the one is the unbeliever in Romans 1. The people who want nothing to do with God. And the other is Abraham in chapter 4. And all the Jewish and Christians, especially the Christians, who have Abraham as their father. I believe that we are meant to see here that Abraham is, in chapter 4, Abraham is presented as being everything that the person of Genesis 1, the unbeliever of Genesis 1, is not. And that therefore the people who are children of Abraham by faith are to be everything that those who know nothing of Abraham or faith are not and will never be as long as they're outside of God's grace. So we're not going to pay attention to all the aspects of these two passages we read. The one we paid attention to in, uh, earlier. But we're going to highlight some of the aspects of these two passages. When I preach this in the front of many of my students, uh, then, and maybe the, some of their, well, there might be one here, if not a professor here, but I had to say to the students, like, don't do what I'm going to do for a classes exam. Uh, don't even do it for a seminary lecture, a sermon proposal. Uh, wait about some years before you try this, because otherwise those who have to judge you might not, might have all kinds of issues. So. There will be issues, but according to our general homiletical procedure, but not according to the content of the Word of God, which is meant to come out in this way. So, and if you want all the details of Romans 1 and Romans 4, if you really want all the details, I assure you I can give you lots of details about Romans 4, because when I worked on my pastoral, my PhD dissertation, it was on Romans 4. I wrote a whole book about Romans 4, but I won't give that to you this morning. It would be a bad sermon. It would even be a bad lecture. Instead, God's word comes to you under this theme. The Apostle Paul speaks of two ways to live and strongly recommends God's way in Christ. We'll look at two views on God's existence, two views on God's power, and two views on God's glory. 
Brothers and sisters, if you are in touch with what other people think about us as Christians, then you know that many people consider us to be uh, these repressed kind of people who really don't get it. And we never manage to enjoy life as we ought, they think. The Word of God, however, as it comes to us here through Paul, suggests that really there are other people who are repressed. Repressed because of the truth that they suppress, according to chapter 1, verse 18. Namely, the truth that there is a created God, and we are living in a world that has been formed by Him. As long as we hold down the truth about the creative work of God, we will never really understand who we are. We will never really understand what this world is and why it is what it is or what the future of this world is going to be like. You only come to understand that in Christ. I'm always impressed by what Paul says here and how much we can know about God from his creation. There is no suggestion in Paul that uh, there, the, the world just contains some hints, some suggestions that it might be a kind of God, a, a first mover of sorts, as Aristotle said. No, chapter 1, verse 20 actually says that from the creation, people can even know the invisible attributes of God. That means they can know and they should know that there is an all-powerful being and that this all-powerful being is God. But they suppress this. They bury it under a thousand excuses. They bury it under a million arguments. And they attempt to convince us that it's so. They attempt to convince each other that it's so. The media attempts to convince you and me that it's so. There is no God. We have created and made whatever you see. And once they have done that sufficiently, convinced each other and themselves, they build their way to live a life without God, a life in which he is banished, godless, and Paul says that's why they are without excuse. They are without apology. Verse 20 of chapter 1. They are without excuse. It means don't blame God. They aren't condemned because they didn't hear the gospel. They are not being condemned even because they didn't hear Jesus and believe in Jesus. They receive that which they deserve because of that which they've done with creation. That which we tend to do of ourselves with creation. We will repress the, the glory of that which we can see in God's creation. And so Paul is saying they receive what they themselves have chosen as they refuse to live according to the clear voice of God that speaks already in the creation around them. But now it's interesting then to move from there to Romans 4 and to Abraham. And you have to remember that Abraham really was the first Jew. After the fall and the flood and the Tower of Babel, things begin over with Abraham, who is from Haran, the Ur of the Chaldees. It's like he's coming out of a Gentile past, except that it's difficult to speak that way because the Jew-Gentile divide really began with Abraham. But notice that Abraham has a different approach to creation and a different response to the way in which God manifests himself in creation. 
There are these creation notes in Paul's Abraham narrative. It's there in chapter 4, verse 17. Abraham is there not seen as one who suppresses the truth about God in creation, but as one who sees exactly the eternal power and the divine nature of God. Rather than suppressing the existence of God, he draws the consequences out of it. Of course, it helps when God comes and speaks to him now and then, as he did in Genesis 12. But still, verse 17, the God of Abraham is seen as the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What's that talking about? It's talking about creation. When God made things out of nothing. You and I, whenever we make something, we're making something out of something. But God has the ability to make something out of nothing. And that's what Abraham did. He, he, he sees this, believes in this God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. There's a hint here of what we call creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. And that's going to come back later in Paul's understanding of the creation, even of his own hope in his life. On a note aside, the Apostle Paul is probably not entirely original here. There was a long-standing Jewish tradition that attributed this kind of thing to Abraham. We still have many documents to this effect. You might remember a, a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. He, he lived roughly concurrently with Jesus and Paul. Anyway, Josephus, for example, and when he rewrites the, the Jewish history, he, he talks about Abraham as the first one who boldly declared that God, the creator of the universe, is one. This he inferred, said Josephus, from the changes to which land and sea are subject, from the course of the sun and the moon and all the celestial phenomena. Anyway, Paul often works with stuff that he sees in, in, in other Jewish writings, but he gives it new authority, new credibility, new status, new power, because he brings it into Scripture and works with it to our delight. In any case, the point is, in Romans 4, we have a number of times the opposite of Romans 1. Instead of suppressing the truth about God's handiwork in creation, Abraham works with it, and Abraham draws conclusions in his life out of it. The issue here is, will there actually come new life out of Sarah's womb? God has promised that would happen. Is that going to happen? This old woman is really going to have a child? Is that going to happen? Well, Abraham is thinking, there's only one who can do that, the same God who before made something out of nothing. He did that when he created the world. Well, look over here. Look at this woman, very elderly. How is this ever going to happen? Only the God who can call something out of nothing can make this be. And that's what Abraham hopes in, according to Paul. And that leads to more here because it is one thing to suppose that God doesn't exist and create, did not create the world, but what happens when you decide that this God has no power whatsoever, no effect? Well, when we go back to Romans 1, we hear Paul saying that when people refuse to acknowledge God, they actually don't stop worshiping. 
They simply change the object of their worship. Chapter 1, verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and created things. It's sheer foolishness, stupidity even. This is the kind of thing that Jeremiah and the other prophets are going on about. At one point, Jeremiah says, people get on a tree from the forest and they decorate it and they fasten it and then they worship it. Their idols can't walk. Their idols can't talk. They're like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They are both stupid and foolish, but people worship them. Isn't that foolish? People don't stop worshiping. They change the object of their worship. They tell you it makes no sense for you to worship a creator, and then they go off and worship created things. This is Paul's complaint. Humanity turns it back on God and turns to bowing down to the very things that God has made. They say they don't want a God, they don't think there is a God, but then they turn to created things and turn them into gods. Don't we do that today? We take money. Money was made. It's fabricated over there in Winnipeg, and it's made and put in your pocket. So why are, do we bow down and worship it? It's man-made. It's this foolishness. So this is our nature. We must worship something. If we reject the Creator, there has to be something which captures our imagination and allegiance, which is the resting place of our deepest hopes and which we look to to calm our deepest fears. Whatever thing you can't live without, that's what you're worshiping and we're serving. It becomes our bottom line. It becomes the thing we can't live without, defining and validating everything we do. Part of this process wherein people suppress the truth is this, that people engage in all kinds of irrational leaps. Chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. They knew him. They didn't honor him as God, didn't give thanks to him. Instead, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They don't see anymore. They don't see sin. They don't see that which has become an idol to them. They don't see the true God anymore. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. And doesn't that happen all the time, all over the place, in so many ways? They don't see creation anymore. Don't see this world. Paul speaks in chapter 1 about homosexuality. What do we see today? People get together who want to explore their new orientation. They get together and they have a parade. And they call it Pride Day. Why do they call it Pride Day? Well, is there... Sorry about that.
still good? Okay. They call it Pride Day. Part of that, there's an aspect of worship. That's the last thing they will let go of. It's the top of their minds. It's what they will serve. They begin to worship the perversion of their own sexuality. This becomes their bottom line, the thing that validates them. Once you take the Creator out of the picture, you begin to make a mess of God's creation. People slaughter their own infants, and they justify it with foolish talk about not being a valid person yet. But meanwhile, they will punish you without any leniency if you touch an animal. Once you take the Creator out of the picture, you proceed to make a mess of His creation. And you make a mess of your own existence as you make all kinds of irrational leaps and jumps in logic and reasoning. But it's worthwhile to notice that it all begins with worship gone wrong. We can smile at the foolishness of ancient idolatry, but all our modern forms of idolatry, money, sex, work, power, are no less foolish and no less stupid. And they will result in the futile thinking and the darkened hearts of chapter 1, verse 21. Homosexuality is not the only result of such. If we do not orientate ourselves through God-pleasing worship, we will move away from pleasing Him in all kinds of areas of life. You name it, from your family to your work to your society to your country, you will move away from pleasing Him in all areas of life. We will deify our sexuality. We will deify our work, whatever idols we have, and they will be as disappointing in the end as Jeremiah's scarecrow in a cucumber patch. The way of God as revealed in Scripture and in the very fabric of creation is not just there for God's pleasure or amusement so that He can punish you when you go wrong. They're all there for human flourishing. We do everything better when He, God, is both our driving force and our ultimate goal. Evil is destructive. Evil is deadly. But God-defined good is life-giving. Don't we see that with Abraham? Because rather than arguing that God has no power at all in denying his existence, Abraham lives out of the faith that God is very much alive. And that, and, and that God has all kinds of power and even has the ability to bring into reality every promise he ever made. I mean, how about this promise? Romans 4, verse 19. Abraham is about 100 years old. And Abraham is praying about having a child. Do you hear that? 100 years old, and he's praying about having a child with a woman who is well into her 90s. I mean, you know, when I prepared this sermon in that week, my wife and I, we took care of our, one of our grandsons, two years old, for about 24 hours. It was delightful. It's wonderful. We love him. We love them all. But I assure you, this is not on our prayer list. And it won't be on our prayer list when we get into our 90s either. We don't expect babies to come out of Ebenezer Villa, do we? 
But here's Abraham, a hundred years old, and he's praying about having a child. It's on Abraham's prayer lift, list, and actually the whole of God's redemptive purposes hangs in the balance on this. The problem is, his own body is as good as dead, and his wife is barren. But yet, he had heard God say that they would have a child. Genesis 12, verse 7, see this land, Abraham, to your offspring I will give this land. In Genesis 17, 15, see the sand on the seashore, see the stars in the sky, that's how many your descendants will be. When Abraham says in Genesis 15, well, how will this possibly happen then? It's obviously not going to happen to us. How about Eliezer? God says, no, it will happen to you. And then there's this Hagar and Ishmael incident. And he's told again, it will be your child, Abraham. And so Abraham believes in the God who can make things exist that do not exist and make them from things that don't exist. He reasons. Faith is not opposed to reason. It may be opposed to feelings and appearances. But he looked at his body and said, no way. But he argued with himself, God said this, God promised, and God has all this power. He is God. He knows we're old, but he's the one who hung the, the moon and the sun and the stars in the sky, and he does all those other amazing things. So is it not ridiculous for me to think that at my age and with her womb, this is a problem for this God? Because he can do all these other things. Is this too much for him? You see, this is what faith is, and this is what justification by faith does. Faith is moving forward despite our weaknesses, despite our feelings and our perceptions. It's not the absence of thinking, and it's not just the acknowledgement that God exists, but it's a reflection on the nature of God, trusting His Word, and then drawing the consequences for that in your life and in your world. In the words of 4 verse 21, it is being fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. Abraham had a promise, and he said God will do what he has promised. And this is the bottom line for all of us. Are there things that God has promised? Well, then you may pray for those things, and you may expect them to happen, because God will do what he has promised. He will move heaven and earth to do what he has promised. Faith is taking God at his word even when there's nothing else to go on, when feelings and popular opinion and common sense seem to contradict his promises. It's to look at what God has said and let that define reality for you. Because it's not that Abraham always lived this way, this way or lived out of faith. Read Genesis. His obedience is not perfect. His, his trust fluctuated. He questioned God. He failed. He lied about Sarah more than once. He tried to make it happen through Hagar. He had his moments. I'm thankful that God doesn't, the Bible doesn't present the Old Testament saints as perfect people because if he did, we would never fit in. It's even honest at one point in Genesis 17, Abraham falls down with laughter and says to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? It's as funny then as it would be today. 
In Genesis 18, God sends three men, three disguised angels to Sarah, and they tell her she's going to have a baby. Her response, so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? No wonder when the son was finally born and they had to give him a name. You know what his name was? His name became? His name became laughter. Isaac means laughter. Because when you're that old and have a baby, all you can do is laugh. There's a wonderful song about this by Michael Card. It goes like this. A barren land and a barren wife made Abraham laugh at his wandering life. A cruel joke it seemed then to call him the father of nations. A heavenly prank, a celestial joke. Because gray hair and babies leave no room for hope. But hoping was something this hopeless old man learned to do. And the refrain, they called him laughter. For he came after the father had made an impossible promise come true, the birth of a baby to a hopeless old lady. So they called him laughter because no other name would do. So this is faith, just holding on to the promises of God. You don't have a basis to ask for anything and everything you possibly want in your life. But you do have a rich basis when God makes promises, and that he does. Even later, at Genesis 22, when Isaac has grown up and God commands Abraham to offer him up, what does Abraham do? He says to his servant, stay here. He says, we will return. Abraham and Isaac are going to go up to this mountain. He says to the servant, we will return. Is Abraham lying again? When Isaac looks up at his dad and says, Dad, didn't we forget something? We forgot the, the wood for the offering. Abraham looks down and says, God will provide. I guess he didn't look down. He looked at his son, who was in his 20s at that time. God will provide. Was he lying again? No, he was speaking prophetically. He was believing in the God who had given him promises. He was believing with the faith that clings to the promises of God. He was reasoning again. If God can bring things that do not exist into reality, if God can give a son to an old couple, well then, even if I slay Isaac upon the altar, God can bring him back from the dead. Hebrews says that, 11 verse 17. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. You see, this is what the children of Abraham learned from their father in the faith. To live by faith. If God said something, if God made a promise, it will happen. It will. We find ourselves too, often in life, facing death. We find ourselves facing situations that are not easy. and we, Especially when it comes to death. If it's not our own death, then it's the death of those whom we love. And we wonder about the truth of the resurrection. But this is the God who's made a promise. This is a God who's put the stars in the sky. This is the God who has brought people from the dead before. Is anything too hard for him? Don't we have this promise in the resurrection event? Death is a horrible thing. As one person said, "'Tis a fearful thing indeed, 
to love what death can touch. It's even a fearful thing to read the papers. The world's a mess, frankly. It makes you wonder, those last pages of the Bible, a new heaven, new earth, a world without pain, a world without persecution, a world without trouble, will that actually happen? But this is what the children of Abraham say and believe because they're children of Abraham. If God can show his power once, twice, he can do it again. If God has made a promise, he will do it. A weak people are strong only as long as and insofar as they pull by faith from this creator God everything that he has promised. And so there's a last point about the glory of God. It's very obvious back in chapter 1, when there are people who pretend that God does not exist, when he is ignored by them, God obviously gets no glory from them. There's some striking language there. Verse 21 actually says, although they knew God from creation, they did not glorify him as God nor give thanks to him. Verse 23 says, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of God for images resembling birds and animals and creeping things. It's actually a play on Psalm 106, verse 20, where it said, Israel at Sinai, they swapped the glory of God for the image of a bull, which eats grass. Ridiculousness. Foolishness. Swapping the glory of God, the God who created everything, for the glory, supposedly, of some things that he made. And when you go on and read the rest of Romans 1, what happens? You and I are to reflect the image of God so that God might get some glory from us. But here in Romans 1, people are so removed from God that it's the opposite. Anti-God, godlessness. There's more of the devil to behold than of God. No one sees anything of God in this. It's not unlike what Jesus says to the Pharisees when they claim to have the same father as he has in John 8. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Because if you were of my father, you would look differently than you do. You would act differently. You would speak differently. But you reflect your father, the devil. But again, Abraham, 4 verse 20, Abraham did not waver regarding the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And how did he give glory to God? The next verse explains, by being fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. And man, did God ever come through. Paul says in that chapter that Abraham became the father of all those who believe. He acknowledges that Abraham became the father of Jewish people, but he says Abraham especially became the father of all those who believe in Christ. He's the father of every Christian person. 
the promise is based on faith that it may depend on grace and so that it may be made certain to all his descendants, not only to those who are under the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. All Jews, all Christians over the ages. That's not just a million descendants. That's billions and billions. And Paul goes on to say, it applies to us as well. Abraham is an example of the great difference that justification by faith through grace makes. The difference the grace of God makes. You live one way without it. You live a completely different way with it. Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness as he looked forward to his promised descendant, not just Isaac, but even and especially to Jesus Christ. Was it not all about him? Was it not all about the glory of what God would do in Jesus Christ? And that's the way it goes with all Abraham's children, us included, who walk in the footsteps of our father Abraham, verse 12. Our faith is in what that great descendant of Abraham achieved. Righteousness will be credited to all of us as children of Abraham, who according to verse 24 and 25, believe in the one who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord and was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Some days I know it looks about as impossible as the promise uh, that of Isaac did to Abraham. But this is the promise which is to define our reality and shapes our lives. The promise of blessings in this life and the promise of a better eternal life to come in a world that's going to be completely renewed. Those promises are of grace Resting not on our performance, but resting on God's promise-keeping power and His promise-keeping love, which has been so visibly and wonderfully displayed for us and evident in Jesus Christ our Lord. God does not exist for our happiness. Another foolish thought of the, this world of ours. But we exist now and forever for His glory. In Christ Jesus, we live for His glory and testify to His glory. It's not a perfect life, but it's a good life that's going to get even better. Today, it is the life which clings to what God has said He will do and sees every struggle, every joy, and every failure as a means whereby God is increasingly to make us rely on Him and His promises. In the words of Michael Card, the last stanza, an improbable infant, a promise come true. They laughed till they wept, then they laughed at their tears. This miracle baby they wanted for years would make a Messiah who would give us an impossible joy. Amen.